Welcome to the public morality. America has long touted equality as one of its primary virtues. But social equity nuances that virtue to uncomfortable levels for it is concerned with the fairness and justice of social policy. And that fairness is dependent on historical and social factors. As we go through and eventually come out of on the other side of COVID-19, what will and should social equity look like? Joining me to discuss the implications of social equity is Professor Benjamin Justice. Professor Justice is chair in the Department of Educational Theory, Policy, and Administration at Rutgers University Graduate School of Education. Professor Benjamin Justice, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. Now, one of the great American myths, uh, at least my words, is the notion of equality. Though a stated principle that's articulated in the Declaration of Independence, can there be a semblance of equality that does not include or consider social equity? And if not, what's the difference? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. I, I would say that what we've settled for in this country is we've settled for due process as our proxy for reasonable equality. In other words, uh, you know, what the, what the 14th Amendment originally said um, was it not only guaranteed due process to everyone, but it also guaranteed equal privileges and immunities, right? Um, privileges and immunities got gutted shortly thereafter by the Supreme Court, and what we were left with was due process. Um, all people do not have equal due process, even though they ought to, and certainly it's a goal that I think fairly consistently our court system has tried to uphold. Um, I'm not sure legislatures are necessarily interested uh, in equality of, of process always or executives, um, and, or even for that matter, all, all judges. But let's, but let's set that aside. So aside from that, though, I, I don't think we have ever had equality of um, civic experience or equality of enjoyment of the laws that, you know, the privileges and immunities part of, of the 14th Amendment. I don't think that we have had equality of opportunity, although I think oftentimes we use that as a society, as a goal. And, and that's oftentimes where we end up talking about education and public education in particular. Um, so, yeah, this this e equality thing um, is definitely a challenge in our country. And, and given the, you know, the enormous disparities in, in wealth and health and opportunity, that we have currently, um, I would say in some ways we're further away from it than, than we have been in the past. And we talk about equality, but, but for a, a, a lot of people, um, the, the, isn't the question, uh, it, given what America's committed to, isn't the question really about equity more so than equality? And, and how are those really different? I mean, the people sort of commingle them, but, but what is equity and how is it different from equality? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I guess e equality implies a kind of um, a kind of uh, sameness. Uh, so when we think about equality, we think about quantities. Um, you're enjoying equality of X, we have more or less the same amount of it. Equity is more about fairness, uh, and so right, we we in this country are 
actually, I would argue, at least in public discourse, are kind of uncomfortable with the idea of equality. People will immediately accuse you of being a communist if you suggest that people ought to enjoy equality. Um, but equity, um, I think most people uh, would get behind the idea that all folks should enjoy fairness, right? Yeah, but yeah, you 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 say people would get behind it, but when we when we nuance it out, there I go with that the the the, the word nuance, the N word. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So equity becomes this catch-all. Uh, but, but there's if we tease that out, there's gender gender equity. Racial equity, educational equity, health equity, and all of a sudden, that sort of co- concept that everybody gets behind are not as ready to get behind it when you tease it out in those in those various strands. Agreed. And one of the mechanisms that people use in their minds and in discourse to justify those inequities um, is to talk about deservingness. And so they will say that, well, some people don't actually deserve equity, that that fairness only applies to people who deserve fairness. Um, (laughs) And uh, right. And so they they come up with reasons like, well, you know, people without jobs don't want to work. People who are sick should have taken better care of themselves. You know, people who are complaining maybe are oversensitive. Uh, and these these are ways, these are rhetorical tricks and, and, and logical arguments that we can use to justify inequity in all the ways that you described. Mm-hmm. So, and, and if equity is not factored um, as we're groping as collectively for a new normal as a result of coronavirus, how might this further impact American society? You mean if we don't strive for equity? Yeah, if, 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 if we just if we just business as usual, if we just continue mm-hmm. um, to approach equity the way we had prior to the coronavirus, what are some of the ramifications or potential ramifications? Right. I would be very, very sad I, um, if we as a society don't learn something from this, because it seems to me that what this has exposed is it has exposed a number of illusions or fallacies that we have about what um, an unregulated, or that's not exactly true, but sort of a, 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 a rigged uh, market system can provide people um, when calamities happen, right? It's, it's really hard to make for people to justify the, the inequalities that that coronavirus is exposing, that some folks are much more vulnerable than others, that some folks are much more dependent on public services than others, that some folks, the people who are the real heroes in this story, the people who put themselves at great personal risk um, to help others, um, are not the people who are looked after by our system. Um, and and so, you know, I would be very, very sad if, if the moving forward, we as a society don't learn something because if this doesn't wake us up, I don't know what could. Uh, you know, when your leader is is suggesting um, that we should explore injecting disinfectants into our bodies or exposing our internal organs to ultraviolet light, we, we're in real trouble if we as a society accept that, right? Um, so, I mean, my direct answer to your question is, you know, I would be really, 
profoundly disillusioned, even even more than I am, if um, if we don't learn from this. Well, you know, when I, and I take your last answer, it sounds to me that you're saying that at some point, you, you know, there's a the old Bob Dylan song. I know I'm dating myself, but when Bob Dylan says, "When you got nothing, you have nothing to lose," if you have if we ignore these issues of equity, don't we risk incre- increasing a population that feels if, if you got nothing, you got nothing to lose, and therefore makes everybody collectively vulnerable? Is that is that a, is that I, a risk? I think that's right, and I I think that there are those who profit from that kind of society, um, who will sell the illusion of personal security and sell the illusion of libertarianism. Um, at the expense of a functioning society, which calls on all of us to make mutual sacrifice, um, you know, for each other's good and for the greater good. So, um, yes, I mean, I, I think that is the risk. And I think part of what the problem is that we're having is, as a society is that, in fact, we have been approaching that place already, right? We have already seen, um, a, you know, a very steady march toward the dismantling of, a, of social programs and a society that actually does try to offer everybody some form of fairness and equity. Uh, and we have also seen a rise in um, the ideology and the um, economy of me first, my personal safety, even if it endangers everybody else-ism. Um, well, yeah. and that... And that um but that's sort of the difference between advocating, you sort of said in a libertarian sense, advocating for absolute liberty, which is um, really not achievable, and an ordered liberty. And, and, and sort of it seems like there's a disregard for the ordered liberty and more and more people advocating for that sort of absolute version that my individual liberty, um, regardless of anyone else or anyone else's um, jeopardy. Right. I agree. Right. Right. And we're seeing that, you know, when you've got um, protesters who are blocking hospitals, uh, I can't I can't even begin to understand the thought process of people doing that in the name of liberty. Uh, But they but they seem to think they are. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Benjamin Justice of Rutgers University about the issue of equity in the midst of. COVID-19. Professor Justice, you know, just furthering this, the, this line of thinking, aren't we witnessing the implications of a society not embracing social equity, at least in terms of education and health in any cons- comprehensible way? And, and speak to those specific concerns, and whichever one you want to take first, education and or health, however you want to address those. Sure. So, um, there's kind of a Janus-faced quality to what we're seeing right now, and the you know the god Janus had two faces. Um, you know, one was a one was a, a positive, um, you know, smiling face, and the other was a you know a, a horrific face. And I think what we're seeing um, with regard to public education and, and the pandemic is just how important public schools are, and how dependent people are on them um, for all the things that they do. Um, not only do they educate children, which is their primary function, but they also feed children. 
and they provide children with friends and, and adults who care for them and look after them, and they provide children with safe environments, and they provide parents with reliable childcare so that the parents can go out and do what they need to do. And um, while it's true that in our society that has so much inequality, not everyone depends in the same way on public schools, it is true that we as a society collectively absolutely do depend on public education and we depend on high quality public education that can enrich the lives of all of our future citizens. Um, so on the one hand, there's that very good quality of public education that we're seeing when suddenly we don't get to have it. Um, on the other hand, what we're also seeing is that of course, public education reflects the inequalities in our society. And so we're seeing that uh, it's much harder for um, parents who go to some kinds of schools um, to be able to make sure that their kids can keep up and have the right kind of internet connection and the right kinds of access to computer hardware and software to continue to learn or parents who can afford to hire tutors to, you know, keep their kids competitive against other kids. Um, and, you know, those kinds of qualities of our education system are, are unfortunate. Um, in higher education, I worry very much about our students at Rutgers, and I worry about students across the country who work really hard at many jobs. I've got students who are working two jobs or three jobs while they're also students in college. And this was not true of previous generations. College is more expensive, more inequality than it has ever been. And, um, you know, our students aren't going to have those service jobs that they had. They are not going to be waiting tables. They are not tending bar. They are not providing all those other services in that particular niche of the economy that they were that they were and. You know, that that is very alarming to me and also, again, reflects deep underlying issues uh, as well as the immediate issue of the pandemic. So, I mean, let, let, let's stay with education. Um, what, in your view, should governments at all levels be thinking in terms of equity in schools once we come out on the other side of this crisis? Right. Well. The first thing that comes to mind, if this, <laughs> this is true at this very second, mm -hmm. uh, is I do worry that we as a society will use this as an excuse to abandon in-person, face-to-face learning. Um, certainly, there's a place for online learning. Uh, we learn from things that we see on screens, absolutely. We learn from conversations that we hear on the radio, like this one right now, absolutely. Um, but particularly in the lives of young people, there still is no substitute for that interpersonal socialization that happens in schools. And so moving forward, I do hope that the lesson we learn from this is not that we can get away with putting everything online, but on the contrary, we, we learn what the limitations are of that kind of learning and just how critical it is that we as human beings continue to come together and learn together in person. Um, so, I, so I do hope that's one thing that we learn. Um, also moving forward, I, I hope that we learn that schools um, and increasingly colleges and universities are a, a really a, a bedrock social institution that provides social stability, it 
It provides ideological um, stability. It, it provides people with the tools they need to solve problems. It provides us with scientific know-how. And, you know, I, I worry very much um, that we live in an age where uh, knowledge is increasingly associated with um, authority. So, uh, and by authority, I, I mean um, political authority. I don't mean scientific or expert authority. Of course not. And so I hope, right. And so a lesson I hope we learn from this is, is, oh my goodness, you know, yes, in a free society, you know, you will always have a Fox News and that's okay. But we as a collective uh, society need to do a much better job of marginalizing and countering the kind of garbage and nonsense that comes out of those kind of media outlets. And Fox News is not alone in that. Um, and so in that sense, I think that, you know, education as a sector of our economy is needs to be as robust uh, and healthy uh, as possible. Uh, if we're, you know, if we're going to get through this pandemic and the next one and the next one and the other kinds of challenges that we face in the future. Yeah. I mean, the, the particular challenges um, and concerns you just articulated, well, they obviously didn't begin on January 20th when the first coronavirus was reported here in America. And, and we sort of touched on it earlier, but really what you're raising is, the, in my view, is the manifestation of issues that really were, was created at the, at the nation's inception. And we've managed to sort of sidestep them in many ways for, for quite a long time. Why is it now sort of, why is this virus in some ways doing things that not even the Civil War um, could do? Well, your thoughts? Wow. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I won't touch the Civil War part of your question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, wow, that's really complicated. Um, I guess what, what I would say is, is, uh, is a couple of things. First, I think we actually... Uh, um, there are many Americans uh, who are not exposed to the underlying damage that actually has been going on sort of long term, uh, particularly environmental damage that really does affect their lives in ways that they are, aren't aware. Uh, and so, you know, I, th I think in, in part we have sort of been kidding ourselves that this that these challenges haven't already existed. They have existed. Um, and they've been creeping up on us. And, you know, they're like the Pacific garbage patch, you know, like it's just they're getting bigger and bigger and and there's no easy way to get rid of them. Um, and my worry is that by the time we, we get on top of those, it'll it'll be too late to solve many of them. But but in terms of the pandemic in particular and the politics of it, you know, I don't think I'm alone in, in thinking this, but it's really hard to deny um, scientific authority in a moment where people really are dying and they're dying quickly. And the science is really good on explaining why they're dying. And so, you know, we can come up with models that will predict pretty well what will happen, whether or not we take particular political courses of action. And unfortunately for the Republican Party at the moment, um, they have aligned themselves as the anti-scientific authority party, 
Uh, and that has really been very damaging to the president. And it's been damaging to his allies because they keep saying things that are increasingly proven to be wrong, not only by authorities, um, which has been happening for a while, but also in people's own experience. You can't, you know, so initially, I, you probably remember this too. Initially, when the virus um, first hit the United States and people, uh, scientific uh, you know, authorities were raising alarms, one of the right-wing responses was, well, yeah, but do you know anybody who has the coronavirus? Is this even real? And if, you know, if that's your argument, you're going to get in big trouble in a pandemic because everybody knows somebody now. Everybody knows this is real. And, and, and staying on that thread, talk about sort of in a macro concept, what are, what are the ramifications for a country committed to, to in, this, in this case, America being a democratic republic, if we don't address the types of concerns you just outlined, the kind of types of things that we're sort of systematically ignoring, what is the threat to our overall, the overall um, democracy? Oh, boy. Well, the threat to the democracy in a political sense uh, is that because we have some, you know, accumulating risks to our physical well-being, you know, our, our, our um, you know, our ability to even exist on this planet, um, you know, on the one hand, you could argue that, you know, that there's sort of an existential threat. If we don't address global warming, we're toast, <laughs> literally. Um, on the other hand, um, I think that in terms of the, you know, in terms of the economy, I, I'm sorry, in terms of politics, um, it seems to me that we could reach a point where people turn to authoritarianism, right? The problem with democracy is that it's hard. It's actually really hard. You have to trust people. And authoritarianism is actually really easy. You just need to trust one person. And that person will validate all of your fears of everybody else. Um, so, you know, the threat to our democracy is we will lose it uh, if we can't find our way to do the harder work of trusting um, experts again and, you know, trusting schools, trusting universities trusting the motivations of people with whom we disagree politically, which we are currently taught not to do, right? The, uh, you know, unfortunately, media and social media in particular is designed to get us worked up and, you know, designed to get us to publish without peer review, to just put our thoughts out there and then have other people react to them. It's very reactionary. That's that's not healthy for democracy. Democracy needs to be deliberative. Democracy needs to have a basic level of regard for the other person with whom you're you're disagreeing. And I think that, you know, whatever the, whatever the next step is for us post-COVID, um, I do hope that we see some reform in terms of how social media operates and in terms of how people talk about and react to all media. Well, that's that's interesting that your your last critique about social media because uh, the the counter argument that social media will provide is we are the most democratic we 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 are the most judicious and how do you and so you I mean you saying that's counterintuitive, right? Well, populism is not the same thing as democracy. 
Populism has no value. Populism is whatever I want it to be right now. Democracy has many elements to it to be functional, as a, to be recognizable as a democracy. And one of them is a basic set of values um, that populism doesn't have to share. So, for example, one is, is political equality, that all people enjoy equal status as citizens and as people. Right. Populism isn't about that. Populism is about scapegoating and hate and anger. And, you know, these people, you know, Kentucky is taking advantage of New York and New York is taking advantage of Kentucky. And, you know, that's that's not democracy. Um, you know, that's not the kind of reasoned, informed dialogue that um, that makes rule by the people work. You know, but, but some of your concerns about equity, let's say in this case educational equity, where we spent the majority of our time discussing, uh, it almost makes, I hate to sound so dire, but it almost makes the criminal justice system like an organic repository for the concerns you're, you're waging. If we ignore education, if we continue to have uh, disparate communities. If we can, if we have one group that that is saying, "If you got nothing, you got nothing to lose," and the other group is fearful of that, and there's a rise of authoritarianism and it's a threat to democracy. Does that sort of make the criminal justice system sort of the repository for those fears and concerns? Um, I, if I understand your question correctly. I would say that it makes all social institutions repositories of our fears because all social institutions can be places where people learn that they are equal citizens who are valued, whose lives have value, who should enjoy dignity, um, or they are places where people learn that they are less than or better than. Uh, and that's true whether people are... Um, receiving public assistance and are being monitored by the person who is uh, processing their claims or whether they are someone who is looking for, um, you know, health care so that they can get better or have something treated or whether they are sending their children to school or whether they're enrolling in a, a community college course or whether they are reporting or not reporting um, an alleged crime to the police. Um, or whether they're sitting on a jury and adjudicating whether someone committed a crime and how they should be punished. Um, I see these as all of a piece. I see these, all these institutions as places where citizens are made or unmade and where democracy ultimately is made or unmade. Is, is this irreparable? How, how can we turn this around? Or, uh... What's the this? I mean, this is the, everything. I'm sorry. Um, this is the this is the pronoun for everything you sort of articulated and all your concerns about the way we're headed. Is it is this irre irreparable? Is is are, are we doomed to have these two education systems? Are we doomed to have two disparate healthcare systems? Are we doomed to have gender inequity? Are we you know are we doomed to have racial differences? I mean, we just go right down the list. Is this no, no, I don't. I don't think we are. And you know, now I'm. I'm trained as a historian, and so I'm very reluctant to predict the future. Um, 
but what I would say is there are some grounds for optimism, and certainly we should always have hope. Um, we owe it to our children to be hopeful. We owe it to their children to be hopeful. Um, and so, no, I mean, I, I think that there are things that we can do. You know, your program is one of the things that we can do. We can engage in reasoned dialogue with people and try to reason across our differences because that builds trust. I don't have to agree with you to trust you because I can have a sense of what your motivations are, right? Um, so insofar as we can continue to build reasoned dialogue, insofar as we can learn to trust each other, um, I love that even though people are social distancing, I love that I see lots of people going outside. <laughs> I see more people outside now in a pandemic than I've ever seen, uh, which, right, which is sort of paradoxical. Um, I hope that continues. I hope that people treasure more than ever their local businesses. I hope that they treasure their, you know, their neighborhood uh, you know, coffee shops and, and bodegas and parks and other really important micro-level social institutions. I hope that people learn to turn off the, you know, major uh, marketed television media um, that's really basically just a commodification of our hopes and fears um, and angers and frustrations and instead find better, richer outlets. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do think there is hope. And, um, and it's, it's really important when you criticize things for a living, which is what professors like me do, um, that we always maintain some level of hopefulness because, you know, we owe it to each other to do that. Hmm. I thought that when you said turn off um – the, the commercial television. I thought you were going to do a plug for the public morality, but I digress. Doc, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Benjamin Justice, Rutgers University. I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the public morality. Much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This was great. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships. Coronavirus reminds us we're in the same boat now. For all of us in the public morality, I'm Byron Williams.